From Lesson 9, Intelligence Analysis, we honed in on population analysis in Lesson 10. Then, as a subdiscipline of population analysis, we investigated stabilization analysis in Lesson 11. Then, as a subdiscipline of both population and stabilization analysis, we looked at just a very few select and limited themes of subnational and transnational governance, outside or alongside what some consider contract society. In these final two lessons, we hone in on one type of subnational and transnational governance. In mobilization and radicalization, lesson 13, we looked at the process towards political violence. In lesson 14, we look at political violence itself. To some degree, we want to challenge ourselves to look at lessons from the global war on terror and leverage them to inform approaches to great power competition. Specifically, we'll analyze the information warfare strategies of networks that conduct political violence, either as a backdrop to contested and battle spaces of great power competition, as proxies of great power competition, or as tools of great power competition. More specifically, on Lesson 13, radicalization, polarization. polarization. This is the process towards political violence, as I said. There is no behavioral, interpersonal, psychological, familial, societal, economic, ideological, ethnic, cultural, criminal, or political profile for someone to mobilize or radicalize. At least one has not been uncovered yet. There appear to be many varied, complex, disparate avenues out of and into the radicalization and mobilization processes. Beware of that analyst that claims to have uncovered the one key to radicalization. He is wrong, or he is lying, or worst of all, he believes his own lies. Out of the thousands of books written on radicalization, hundreds are what I would consider, in my humble opinion, conducted with sober, consistent, and relatively sound methodologies. And each and every one comes to a different conclusion, pointing in a different direction with equal confidence. So on to lesson 14. In lesson 14, we look at political violence itself and the potential for political violence. Partisans fighting the kinetic and gray zone battles, great power competition, from Russian direct support of white supremacists and Nazis in Europe and North America, or exacerbating existing partisan and political divisions in Africa, Europe, and the Americas, or China causing fractures between governments of South Asia, Africa, and Latin America and their citizens, governments accepting impossible China loans while citizens, First Nations people, indigenous movements, and other civil societies, or civil societies writ large, I should say, while they lose resources and jobs and suffer the consequences of almost immediately crumbling infrastructure and seemingly forever debts brought to you by Beijing. The war in Ukraine, often on fighting in Mozambique, and humanitarian crises in Yemen's fractured civil war underline this political violence and partisan warfare. But before we jump into literature on guerrilla proxy and partisan warfare for Lesson 14, Let's take a step back. Why is studying mobilization and radicalization important to this course and important to our studies at NDU? I'll provide five reasons. First, organizations of political and ideological violence from neo-Nazis to Hezbollah to Abu Sayyaf to Hamas to al-Shabaab to Boko Haram offer the most potent lessons in information warfare strategies arguably, to state powers. For example, during the so-called global war on terror, 
violent extremist groups have had to use informational warfare strategies, online influence, <clears throat> and so-called ideological or cognitive warfare. They have to be excellent in order to survive. That ISIS still exists and grows like wildfire in some areas of Southwest and Southeast Asia and West Africa, for example, after their military defeats in Syria and Iraq is testament to their bravura influence strategies. Beijing, the Kremlin, and Tehran, they study violent extremist group influence strategies for core lessons on how to do influence themselves. Corporations study violent extremist movements and strategies for branding and marketing lessons. No joke. Violent extremist organizations are a meta case study of information power, information strategy, and influence best practices. It's not a force multiplier. It's not a money saver for violent extremist groups. They conduct information persuasion and influence campaigns to survive. Two, we discussed foundational narratives in our very first information lessons back in September, which many argue play a strategic role in radicalization, counter-radicalization, and political violence. Violent extremist organizations and other politically violent entities have a national or regional or world vision which they may want to impose. ISIS, for example, wants to disrupt the international rules-based, Westphalian-based, realist-based structures. And to do this, they must have a visceral understanding of foundational narr narratives, sacred values, worldviews, biases, and necessary hooks to inspire lone wolves and inspire local partners. To hijack the driving forces of disparate tribes and cause instability. Has ISIS used, translated, and influenced via foundation narratives? Well, it's a fair question. And I want, to ask, I want you to ask ourselves, I want all of us to ask ourselves, if every single ISIS militant fighter and leader dropped dead at the snap of my fingers right now, who among us believed that the movement would die? That the influenced young people would not still attempt to keep the movement moving? That their very military defeat would play into the core narrative of innocence under attack in a vision of the future that calls for nothing short of an apocalyptic war. That ISIS isn't spending 24 hours every day trying to influence and recruit for future generations of fighters and leaders. Three, we have our theme of finite versus quote-unquote beyond limits ways and means. Not only do violent extremist organizations and other politically motivated violent organizations like ISIS not get bogged down by borders in the Middle East and Africa that were drawn by a wooden ruler. Not only do they operate in the seams between geographic combatant commands, not only do they exploit US, US's supposed pivot to the East and focus on great power competition, but they also hold a strategic vision that calls for any and all ways and means. What works is what is put to work no matter how lo-fi, no matter how seemingly rudimentary, the good ones are not so suicidally stupid as to get on sat phones or directly go on Twitter. They operate outside what some define as the global information environment, but still affect the global information environment each and every day. Most importantly, they use all means, private and public, with impunity and prejudice, beyond the dime construct beyond what is taught in traditional military education. They take lessons learned from 20th century 
atheist communist movements, lessons learned from ancient Chinese and Indian and North Africa literature. Number four, they show extreme flexibility. They seem to often change their complete identity and strategy the moment the situation calls for a rethink on ways and means. Most often this is displayed as good, flexible operational art with a common guiding vision. Occasionally, they show some elements of being complex adaptive systems on the quote-unquote edge of chaos. They exhibit self-organization, complexity, interdependence, and co-evolution. In a complex adaptive system, the system and the agents co-evolve. The system lightly guides agents' behavior, but the agents modify the system by their interactions with it. The best-run violent extremist groups survive because they operate at the edge of chaos by relentlessly pursuing a path of continuous innovation and indeed because they inject so much novelty and change into their normal operations. Number five, foreign powers attempt to exacerbate not only political tribalism inside the borders of adversaries and competitors, but also organizations that may be considered by those governments as violent extremist groups or may be considered groups that pose a potential and credible threat of political violence. An extreme example is the Russian Imperial Movement, or RIM. According to Extremism.com, the Russian Imperial Movement is a fascist group based in St. Petersburg, Russia, that seeks to create a mono-ethnic state. And I go on to quote, although the group is not openly sponsored by the Russian state, that can be argued, by the way, the RIM has allegedly recruited and trained Russian fighters for Russia's ongoing conflict with Ukraine, even today. Some experts say the Russian government is actively cultivating ties among right-wing extremist groups to undermine Western democracies. They turn a blind eye to far-right paramilitarism within its borders, actively cultivate neo-Nazism in the West, and these decisions, I go on to quote, align with this broader project to sow discord in Western democracies. Support for right-wing violence in the West constitutes an element of its broader destabilization campaign, tacit support to violent white nationalists as part of a strategy to internally fracture Western nations. Now, as a final thought for this podcast, I want to provide some definitions that I think can be helpful. Violent extremist. An extremist has an unpopular fringe or radical view according to the observer. Violence is an act or acts intended to physically harm a person and or damage property. The term violent extremism is often subjective and pejorative. Terrorism. Politically, it is often a subjective pejorative term for maligned acts by maligned actors. One terrorist may be another's freedom fighter. History may judge a once-labeled terrorist a patriot. Professionally, it's important that we understand our government as well as allied governments and international and regional organizations' definitions, which differ. As a strategist and scholar, you may study terrorism as a tactic as old as Homo sapiens to imbue fear beyond an action itself. The tactic normally involves violence or the threat of violence, sometimes but not necessarily with a view towards a political goal. A war on terrorism, literally, is a war on a common martial tactic. That is, it's irrational. It doesn't make sense. To date, no ideology, no belief system appears to have a monopoly 
on terrorism. So we should look at each group at each given point in time in each region, perhaps separately. Radicalization, some analysts define this highly contentious term as the process of someone becoming radical. Some researchers emphasize extreme beliefs focusing on a cognitive transformation. Others choose to study mobilization, that is the behavioral steps towards someone becoming a violent actor instead or in addition. As a scholar and strategist, it may be wise for us to study all behavioral, psychological, grievance-based, social, geographic, economic, narrative, ideological context and motivation behind what some deem as radicalization and mobilization. De-radicalization. The undoing of radicalization, also dubbed demobilization, defection, de-escalation, desertion, desistance, reintegration, reinsertion, and rehabilitation with varying and overlapping definitions and implications. Such campaigns do not necessarily mean total ideological surrender. There could be a complete renunciation, conditional recantation, or short-lived pragmatic martial surrender, for example. Resistance movement, an organized effort by some portion of the civil population of a country to resist the legally established government of an occupying power. This is according to JP1-2. Legitimate governance, according to JP3-24, the authority to govern is dependent upon the successful amalgamation and interplay of four factors, mandate, manner, support and consent, and expectations. When the relationship between the government and those governed breaks down, challenges to authority may result. This definition is highly contested. Irregular warfare, according to JOCIW 2000 from 2007, a violent struggle among state and non-state actors for legitimacy and influence over the relevant populations. Irregular warfare favors indirect and asymmetric approaches, though it may employ the full range of military and other capabilities in order to erode an adversary's power, influence, and will. It encompasses insurgency, counterinsurgency, terrorism, and counterterrorism. Unconventional warfare. According to TC18-1 from 2010, enable a resistance movement or insurgency to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow a government or occupying power by operating through or with an underground auxiliary and guerrilla force in a denied area with a scope that frequently exceeds the capabilities of a military alone. Foreign internal defense. This is from JP3-22 from 2012. The participation by civilian and military agencies of a government in any of the action programs taken by another government or other designated organization to free and protected societies from subversion, lawlessness, insurgency, terrorism, and other threats. The focus is to support the host nation's internal defense and development. And finally, contemporary targeting. The find, fix, finish, exploit, and analyze the enemy faster than it can evolve itself. There is no evidence that this tactic helps to strategically defeat any contemporary violent extremist or politically violent organization or insurgency. Thank you.